Today's Bible reading comes from James chapter 3, verse 13 to 4, verse 12. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander against one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? All right, well today we come to the central part in the book of James, being wise to our desires, being wise to our passions. And to kick us off, I wanted to ask my twin brother Adam, who is, happens to be here today from Sydney, to come up and to tell a story which I had forgotten. Adam told it yesterday, uh, but it was about us as boys being led by our passions and desires. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, and good morning. I love coming to Adelaide. It's a beautiful place and I'd rather live here than Sydney. You can. <laughs> really, really. Um, when Chris and I were boys, about nine and ten, we had a strong desire that burns in the heart of every nine and ten-year-old boy to set things on fire. <laughs> and, and Mum always said that twins are twice as good or twice as bad as a normal child. So we made a plan to set things on fire. Um, we first needed access to the fire. We didn't have matches, we didn't have log fires at home. Dad deliberately kept them way out of our reach, I, I suppose. We didn't know where they were. Our grandmother was a smoker 
And so we saw that she had a lighter, right? So we thought if we could get hold of a lighter, then we've got access to fire. Um, not many people want to sell you um, nine and 10 year old boys lighters, except the dodgy guy at the servo up the top of the road. So we got a lighter, and, um, but then when we got it, we, we pushed the button and it, it didn't work. <laughs> so we thought, we better watch what Nan does. Next week over at Nan's, we saw her spin the dial as she lit up and went, oh, that's the key. So, you know, the, the wheels are turning. And so we got, got home, got the lighter, went down the backyard. Oh, it works. Brilliant. So then we, we thought, what are we going to burn? It was, um, <laughs> it, it was uh, winter and the jacaranda leaves had fallen and at the base of a jacaranda tree was all this kindling and we thought, this is ideal and so we we filled this four liter ice cream bucket with kindling from the jacaranda leaves and then we thought well we safety first we don't want to burn it near the other kindling so we climbed the tree and I held the bucket Chris had the lighter flame into the bucket it worked it was unbelievably successful a bit too successful because I didn't realise that plastic melted, and <laughs> as it burned through, the, the bottom quickly fell out of the, <laughs> the bucket onto the kindling at the base of the tree, and that started to go up. Chris, action man, thought, I know what I'm going to do. I'll leave my brother holding the burning, melting bucket. He jumps down and he begins to stamp out the burning kindling at the bottom, and, and to my dismay, I watched as, as this burning matter from my holeless bucket fell onto his head and onto his back and that's I guess why I remember that episode and probably Chris doesn't <laughs> I, I rang up mum and dad yesterday and told them that and then said well I'm going to hang up now and I want to leave you and give thanks to the Lord that somehow he preserved us and we're still here uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, help us now as we come to this thorny topic of our out-of-control passions and desires, which can <laughs> set things on fire, can't they? Our loving God, um, help us to be wise to them, and we pray that you give us an openness of heart and an openness to hear you speak, a humility uh, that we would think and behave the way you want us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in the center part of the book of James, which is all about being wise to our desires. The book of James, if you've just come in here and you feel like you're in the middle of a, you know, walking into a movie which is halfway through and you haven't followed the plot line. Uh, okay, let's just recap. It's, the book of James is all about wisdom, being wise, we've heard to trials and difficulties, being wise regarding mercy, being wise to faith, being wise to speaking. It's all about wisdom. And the reason is because of chapter one, verse 18, that God chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of God's creation. Okay? So he's saying, when you or I hear and believe the good news of Jesus and we trust in him as the Lord that he is, God makes us new. We have new life, we have an eternal life. And that comes with it, a new way of thinking and behaving. So if you suffer trials and difficulties, 
Well, now you think about them through the lens of eternity. It recalibrates how you think about things. Um, James had become new. James was the younger half-brother of Jesus. James's mother was Mary. His father was Joseph. James, through his uh, early life, had been hostile to Jesus' message. But after Jesus had risen from the dead, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus wonderfully met James and he opened the scriptures to him, presumably, and James was so strongly and thoroughly converted that he quickly became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. And in chapter one, verse 18, James says, in one way, what happened to him in his conversion is the same way, same thing that happens to everyone who comes to faith. We become new. Okay, born again. Now, why then do we need wisdom? Well, James knows that although we've got this new life, we still live in the world, and our background is the world, and the shape of our thinking, the default way of thinking is the world. And not everything has been recalibrated in our lives. We can be, in James's words, double-minded. We can be like that person in that very awkward situation where they've got a foot on the pier, and they put a foot on the boat that they want to tread into and they get further apart. It's very uncomfortable and then you end up landing in the plonk. Well, James doesn't want us to land in the plonk, right? He wants to have us feet firmly uh, in the kingdom of heaven and think God's way. So he speaks to us about wisdom. And today he wants us to be wise to our desires as he addresses the very difficult topic of fights and quarrels in church. Now it might be possible that you've moved to our church because of fights or quarrels in your previous church. Maybe you were part of them, maybe you just witnessed them. Or maybe you can remember fights and quarrels here and you've been scarred by them. They are ugly and they shouldn't be part of church life, but what do we do if they are? They were certainly part of church life in James's time. Well, James says you need to become wise to your desires. Desires, chapter four, verse one, which battle within us. Because there is a battle. On the one hand, there can be envy, there can be coveting, so well illustrated in the kids' talk. Chapter three, verse 13, or chapter four, verse two, mentions those. But on the other hand, there's the spirit of God inside us who himself is envious, who himself is jealous for us. Chapter four, verse five. So there's a battle. Now, to help us work through this, James will have us ask two searching questions that require reflection, and then he'll give one spiritual assessment that we need to take to heart, and then he'll give us two necessary steps as a way forward. Two searching questions, one spiritual assessment, two necessary steps. First of all, the two searching questions. Now, we see them there in chapter three, verse 13, who then is wise and understanding among you, and chapter four, verse one, what causes fights or quarrels among you? They're questions. He asks them, he wants us to reflect. Stop and think. First of all, if you think you're wise, what wisdom are you operating with? That's what he's really saying. Because you can bet that everyone in a church conflict 
will believe that they are the godly ones, they're the wise ones, they're the ones who can really see the truth, whereas those who are against them, they're the ungodly ones, they're the foolish ones, they're the ones who really don't understand the complexity or the clarity of the issues at play. Really, says James? Pause. Ask yourself, what wisdom are you operating with? Because as each of us can call ourselves wise, we can think ourselves wise, and each of us will have a wisdom of sorts. That's not the question. The question is, is which wisdom? Because within each of us can be two competing wisdoms, James says. There can be the wisdom from above, which shows itself in humility and good deeds. But then there can be the wisdom of the world which shows itself in bitter envy and selfish ambition. And so James says if we're drawn into a fight or a quarrel, we have to ask, well, which wisdom is coming out? He says you have to ask this of yourself. If there is envy, if there is selfish ambition, he says you cannot deny it. it you must, the thing you must do is own it. Verse 14, he says you have to acknowledge the truth. Why? Because the cost is too high if you don't. Chapter three, verse 16, where you have en uh, envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. That's amongst the people of God. Now that wisdom is a complete contrast to the pure, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, merciful wisdom from above. And James says that produces peace and a harvest of righteousness. So there's the first searching question. If you think you're wise, what wisdom are you operating with? And James says, you have to ask this of yourself because it's possible to be operating with an earthly, worldly wisdom, which is thoroughly selfish. The second searching question goes even deeper. He says, why do you ever, oh sorry, do you ever wonder why you quarrel in the first place? I mean, why does it happen? If you don't wonder about this, James says you should, and that's why he asks us the question. And if you do wonder about it, then you've got to ask, well, what desires are at play? Chapter four, verse one, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Um, I was doing some research for this passage and I was drawn to the example of John Piper who some of you will know, he's a massive figure in the evangelical world. He's rega well-regarded theologian and author and pastor. I've heard him speak at a conference. It was massively helpful to me. At the age of 64, John Piper took eight months off from his ministry with the um, encouragement of his elders uh, to check in on his soul because they wanted to know, are you still living on your ministry or are you still living on Jesus? Was he dealing properly with his persistent sins? And so he took the scriptures away with him for eight months to search his soul, imagine that. And during that time, he wrote a book and he identified his most persistent sins. His desire to be served, his sense of being owed, his need to be praised, his love of being obeyed, 
and his anger when these things didn't happen. And then he outlined the effects of those sins in his life. The effects were he was frequently an angry person, he was a self-pitying person, he was a blaming person, he was a frequently sullen person. And he said, on examination, each of those sins was as dangerous to his soul as sexual temptation. And so then he spent time preaching the gospel to himself. And he reminded himself that the gospel of Jesus cancels our sin. And as well as that, the gospel of Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. But nevertheless, it required from him serious faith and serious fighting. And then he, he, when he went back to his ministry, something happened on a Sunday night, a trivial, trivial thing. And, but he outlines it in his book and he said, at home, there was an instance when on a Sunday night after church, you know, his wife and daughter, 14 years old, said, she was an adopted daughter, said, uh, look, we're going to go and watch some show on television, but they didn't include him. And this mattered. He was left out. And he felt overlooked, and a trivial example really, but he recognized that his emotional response was disproportionate and not right, and he went to his study, and he said, in my study I waged war. I turned my heart and my mind to the promises of God, to the assurance of the cross, to the love of the Father, to the patience of Jesus, and I cried to the Lord for help, and I beat down the ungodly anger and the pitying self-pity by God's grace. And I thank God that he not only canceled my sin at the cross, but he breaks the power of canceled sin. It's a helpful example because it's so trivial. But it can show how sinful desires can coexist with the Holy Spirit in someone as mature as John Piper, right? And all of us, right? So James says, we all have these desires at work. He says, you know how it is. You're in your car, you're suddenly blocked. You can't move. And then you get overwhelmed with frustration. That's right, Sally, isn't it? You want to lash out in anger, right? Or you've got something you want to get done at church and you're blocked. Or at home, you've got something that you want to happen and you're blocked. And what you want to get done isn't happening. And James says, you desire but you do not have, so you kill. And we think, really? Was the early church that bad? Surely not. James is using the language of Jesus who said anger and murder are very closely related because when we get angry at someone in our heart, we, we murder them in our heart, right? And true murder, physical murder, begins in the heart. We can do it to people at church. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Why don't you get what you want? James says, because you do not ask God. You take it on yourself, it's personal battle. You, you enter into the fray, it's a vendetta, I'm gonna show them, I'm gonna get my way. Hello, the Lord is there, you could ask him. That's the wise response to come together in prayer. And then, of course, what happens when you have to sit down with someone who has a vested interest in something but sees things differently, when you come together to pray, what happens? You have to strip away your pretensions. You have to strip away your pride because you come before God who sees the motives of your heart. 
and you have to pray a prayer that's humble that the other person can say amen to. And that requires us yielding our own agendas and saying, God, in the end, you know best, may your will be done, not mine. Now, of course, praying does not mean that God will grant us everything we request. Sometimes God has a bigger and better agenda that we're blind to and ignorant of. But then there's also the case here, verse three of chapter four, when you ask, you do not receive, why? Because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And here we see for God to answer us, we need to have our motives right and to ask God with a surrendered heart instead of a divided heart. Now, if we were to ask the question, how many international wars have different countries been involved in that we know about, you know, here's the tally. I looked it up. China, 20. Italy, 44. Germany, 57. Russia, 76. The US, 101. Poland and Austria, 115. India, 148. The United Kingdom, 180. Hungary, 190. France, more than 250. And Spain, more than 300. Now, some of those were defensive wars against invaders. Some of them were moral wars. But you can bet that if you were to look into the origins of most wars, they would begin with a leader who wanted to get what they wanted rather than what God wanted. And what takes place on the international stage between countries can also take place on the stage of our hearts. James says we need to know ourselves and the desires that battle within. You may not have eight months to examine your soul, but even eight minutes of searching reflection would bring some of our desires to serious light. And so asking two searching questions, James gives us now one spiritual assessment. Whereas before he used the strong language of killing, now he uses the equally strong language of adultery. He says, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity, hatred against God? So he uses the language of adultery. And he says, guess what? When you became a Christian, God or Jesus becomes your husband. You are his bride. And yet spiritually speaking, what happens when we court favor with our worldly, earthly passions in our hearts is that we move God out of the marital bed and we ask the world to come in and lie in the bed with us. And James says, look, let's be real about this. You cannot lie in two beds. Therefore, anyone who says who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You operate with a divided heart, you commit spiritual adultery against Christ as Lord, who is Lord over every corner and every centimeter, every millimeter of your life. It's not that any of us get up in the morning and think, well, today is a good day for me to be a friend of the world. But each day, of course, what happens is we get up and then we're presented with thousands of temptations, thousands of, of distractions and decisions, and, you know, drill down, and it's impossible to drill down on everyone, but you, you're faced with a choice. Am I going to live for Christ or give in? And you know and I know that we are adept at living divided lives. We want much of what the world offers, and so we hedge our bets. We want God and eternal life as well as the world. And so when Jesus says, you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve 
God and money. Either you'll hate one and love the other or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Many of us think, well, other people can't do it, but I think I can. <laughs> and we try and invite the world into our marital bed. Now, some of you will get this. Some of you will be asking a theological question at this point and you'll be asking the question, is James saying that I can lose my salvation, right? Because doesn't Paul teach that Jesus died so that God would justify the ungodly and that being justified by faith, we now have peace with God and we are no longer his enemies. Isn't that true forever? But here James seems to be saying it's possible to lose that and become an enemy of God. Now I wanna say two things which give us assurance. James is speaking very relationally, right, about our operating relationship with God. But there is assurance in verses five and six of chapter four. In verse five, James points us to God's good jealousy which is protective and devoted rather than jealousy which is ungodly that's envious and competitive. God has good jealousy. He's protective of us, he's devoted to us. And James points us to the scriptures which said, says God jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us. We might be inviting the world in but God is not a husband who's going to back down. He doesn't just capitulate and say, oh well, well I guess I'm out. He says, I'm not gonna let you. You know, you might be wayward but I'm not giving up on you, I'm not walking away, I love you, I'm committed to you, I paid for you, I've sacrificed for you, I'm not gonna let you walk out on me. I am here talking to you now, which he is through his word, by his spirit, I'm calling you to return, to love me, because I love you. Our desire for the world might be strong, but God's desire for us is stronger, he's jealous for us, and I think this is wonderful. Isn't it so comforting? I might be consciously thinking about being faithful to God, maybe one day in seven, and just drifting. But God is thinking about being faithful to me seven out of seven days. So that's the first assurance, and then the second in verse six, we're told he gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. He gives us grace when he first saves us and places us on the narrow way with him. But then when we stray off that narrow way and we go off on one of the thousand detours which are offered to us in our life, guess what? He gives us more grace and he keeps bringing us back to the narrow road, which he's doing right now, isn't he? But of course, we need the humility <laughs> to hear his voice. We need to be humble. And James says, that's why scripture says, God gives grace to the humble. But just as that is true, so is also the fact that God opposes the proud, and we need to hear that too. So that when we're going off, God is calling us back, and if we remain proud, if we're flirting with the world, if we're loving its praise, loving its adulation, listening to its approval, yearning for it, and if we remain like that, persistently too proud to listen to God's yearning, ardent, call for us to come back to him. There will come a point when we will realize that our true love, our heart love is the world and our pretend love is the Lord. And at that point we have become just like the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus because he loved wealth or we'll become just like Demas who loved the world more than God or we'll become even like Judas who sold his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. God opposes the proud and he warns us about this. But the wonderful thing about God is that he gives, us, he gives grace to the humble. 
Grace when we begin, grace to keep on going. So we've had two searching questions. If you think you're wise, what wisdom is operating? If you wonder why you fight, what desires are at play? And we've had one spiritual assessment. You can't lie in two beds, God will not let you. But now we might ask, now that we feel exposed, well, what should we do? (laughs) Okay, so finally, two necessary steps. One for God, one for each other. The first is that we need to relationally put things right and keep putting things right with God. The essential thing is to come to God in humility and submission. So if we're flouting it with the world, we need to come and say on bended knee, I was wrong. I have been wayward. You are right. I realize that now. I want to follow you again. That is repentance. And there are two sides to repentance, what we're turning from and who we're turning to, who we're resisting and who we're opening ourselves to. And I love these verses. I want you to see the power in the promises of these verses. We are told to resist the devil And then we are given the promise that when we resist the devil, guess what, he will flee from us. So please see, it is not the case that the devil is there inevitably wearing us down, grinding us, torturing us until we will capitulate and give in. It's not like we are stuck in the mud at the seashore and the tide, like the devil, the devil like the tide will come in and just drown us in the end. It's not the case. Maybe you've been feeling the weight of temptation. You think there's no hope. Well, there is power in this promise. When we resist the devil, he will flee. He will flee. I loved Doug's words. Doug got baptized. He's here today. Doug got baptized back in um, June at our weekend together. And in the interview, Doug said, you know, he had such a strong sense of turning from sin and Satan at his conversion. And he saw things very clearly, very clearly now. He said, it's like, these are Doug's words, he said, it's like Satan saying, come and stick your hand into a vat of of boiling oil. That'll be good for you. He said, who'd want to do that? It was so clear. Resist the devil, he will flee. And then come near to God. Because here's this verse made famous by Colin Buchanan, come near to God and he will come near to you. In our low moments, we can doubt God on this. We can think that God would never accept me back because I wouldn't if I were him. Surely God is upset with me, he's angry with me, he is frustrated by me, he is hurt by me, he would never accept me back. But we forget who he is because we think that he's like us. He's not like us. He is the father of the prodigal son. He's the father of every prodigal son or daughter. He is waiting, he is yearning, he is longing, he is looking for us to come back to him. And when we do, he doesn't say, well now guess what, you have to muck about, you have to earn your place as a servant because you're no longer worthy to be my son. No, that's what we feel, isn't it? God says, it's time to rejoice, kill the fattened calf. He who was lost has been found. She who was lost and wandered has come back. So he says, come near to God, he will come near to you. And that requires us to have the humility of heart to see where we have been in our wandering. We've been in a pigsty. We've been a long way from where God wants us to be. 
And James uses the language of deep, sober repentance. He says there's no room here for superficial games. You can't play games with God. You can't just laugh it off. He says, you can't have pleasant smiles and false promises. He says, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's the word of having one foot on the pontoon and one foot on the boat, right? Purify your hearts. Step. Both feet on the pontoon. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail that you ever thought of moving away. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's calling for deep, heartfelt, emotional repentance. And that comes from the realization that the worst thing about our sin is not being afraid that we'll be found out, or it's not even the damage that we might do to others. No, the worst thing about our sin is that we have grieved the Lord and his spirit. When we hop in bed with the world, when we indulge our passions and desires which are ungodly, we cause him grief. He who loves us, who wants us, who died for us, who will bring us to glory, we cause him grief. And so the first necessary step is in humility and contrition to come near to God. And we're going to have a moment to do that in a, in a sec. But finally, the other thing we need to do, of course, where there's been quarrels and fighting and it's come out, our sinful nature's come out, is not to sin further by slandering others involved because we can be subtle in putting people down and demeaning them for, uh, before others, even if there's a, we've agreed on an armistice. You know, we won't go there anymore. But you can, you can undermine someone. You know, in prayer time with other people, Lord, have mercy on our sister here for all her behavior, for the wrong thinking she has done. Bring her to repentance because she's obviously wrong. What backhanded slap. Um, rubbing people's nose, noses in the dirt. We wouldn't like someone praying like that for us and when we do things like that, we put ourselves above the law, says James. The law which in Leviticus 19.18 says love your neighbour and which four verses earlier in Leviticus 19 verse 14 had said do not slander. To put ourselves above God's law is to put ourselves above God who gave us this law and to judge him and what he says is irrelevant for our lives and we think no, we know better. He says don't do that. So... You've been good at listening. How do we be wise to our desires? Two searching questions. What wisdom is operating? What desires are at play? Heavenly wisdom or earthly wisdom? Peaceable wisdom or murderous wisdom? What desires, selfish or selfless? And we've had one spiritual assessment. We are all capable of committing spiritual adultery. And in fact, the reality is we do it two necessary steps, come near to God and then don't slander others. Father in heaven, write your law in our hearts by your Holy Spirit and teach us the wisdom that is from above. We ask that you by your spirit over time as we reflect and repent and are contrite and are humble and tremble at your word, that you would make us more and more like Christ and that he would shine forth more and more brightly. And we pray it for your glory. Amen.